God, dig that. Now, ladies and gentlemen, repeat after me. Sabrina's Dirty Deeds. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Sab. Hello, Jamie. Good to see you. You too. We're in winter. It's cold. Yeah. We're outside on your deck <laughs> at night. I know. I know, but I didn't realise just how much Italian blood can attract mosquitoes because <laughs> you, you were like, it was like this little sort of film around you of, of buzzing. You couldn't see me for all the mozzies around me. I've had to, I've got a jumper on, but I've had to wrap my hands up inside the jumper um, just to, to get away from them. The top of my head is the only bit exposed. I haven't seen any on your head. Oh, They're all after your hands. Like. That's it. <laughs> I tell you, they love me. They just come after me like nothing else, Sab. So well, I'm going to take you everywhere. I tell you what, you are a good person to have to sit next to when That's very true, isn't it? Adults. I just thought I was popular. People just want to keep the mozzie. I'm the decoy. <laughs> you are the decoy. Uh, poor sausage. Well, there you go. If anyone has a problem with mosquitoes, they can hire me out. Uh, what well, do you reckon? Uh, 50 an hour, I yeah. reckon, is the mozzie decoy. I reckon I'd pimp you out for that much. You should see sure. me if I, you know, go to Bali or something like that or a oh. place where there's a lot of mozzies. I remember oh. I made the mistake once of falling asleep outside. Oh. Might have passed out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I woke up the next day. Oh, it looked like the surface of the moon. I tell oh. you, it was no good. Bumps everywhere. <laughs> Oh, you poor thing. Anyway, oh, it's all good. Yeah, I was just keeping you safe. You're fine. <laughs> Thank you very much. I haven't been bitten once. It's marvellous. done all right. It's our work. There you go. Maybe you I should up it to work. 100 an hour. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was built oh, for. Oh, that's so funny. Uh, so, so it's getting a little chillier. We talked about yes. winter last week. But um, we're taking a bit of a trip to... Or somewhere where there's a bit more sun at Absolutely. the moment. Absolutely. We can't we can't fly, but we can virtually go somewhere. And today, Jamie, we're going to go to Kew Gardens, which is a proper flash place. And uh, we're very, very fortunate to have uh, Richard Barley with us, who's actually the director at Kew Gardens of Horticulture Learning and Operations. You must be pretty busy, Richard. Hello. Good morning. Good morning from here. Anyway, ah, yeah, no, yes. we are. Uh, yeah, we're 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 pretty busy currently, I must say. But it's lovely speaking with some Australians, as always. <laughs> Little reminder of home, Richard. Exactly. No. Uh, look, I, I must tell you, Q has a has a long association with Australia, and you may know that one of our, I guess, our first unofficial director was Sir Joseph Banks, who, when he returned from the Endeavour voyage, he he settled down here at Kew and and pretty much ran the place for, oh, thirty odd years. Um, so there's a, a long link with Australia. There have been directors from Australia, and our collections of plants, of course, from Australia are, are mm. extensive as well. So and currently we, there are several Aussies on staff here. I must say I've recruited one or two. Oh, excellent! We like that. So you've got someone to have a beer with. <laughs> someone <laughs> to talk sense to from time to time. <laughs> well, first of all, let's talk about how you scored such a fabulous job. Well, just a, a lot of good fortune and good luck, I think. But I'd, I'd worked at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Melbourne for almost thirty years, and then for three years with Open Gardens Australia. And, and then this opportunity arose, which in, in the world of Botanic Gardens, to come here to be Director of Horticulture, which is what the role was at the time, um, was, was just a, a dream come th- true. So I, I was just really lucky to be appointed. Um, 
and we, we moved over here. My wife, Anita, and daughter, Georgina, moved into our, our 1700s cottage, built in about 1700, actually, a little Georgian cottage within the Kew Gardens. Wow. Um, and and uh, and then the role has expanded subsequently for, for one reason and another, so it's, it's a bit broader now. What a way still, to... I mean... I, I was going to say, what a way to live and breathe the job, Richard. Yeah, it, <laughs> completely. I mean, I must say, at times it, it might be nice to escape it a little <laughs> bit, but you know, you know, we're incredibly lucky to be here, and and Q is is such a, a remarkable place for anyone interested in in plants, horticulture, trees, anything at all. It's it's a, an incredible place. Well, the collections must be vast, good grief, because it's you know. Plants from all over the world came to Kew, didn't they, for over the last yeah. couple of centuries, really? Yeah, yeah, from from the late 1700s when, when Joseph Banks started to commission collectors to go out to different parts of the world, South America, Africa, Australia, um, you know, China, Americas, he, he paid people to go and collect plants and bring them back or send them back to Kew. Um, so, so our current living collections are are unparalleled in terms of their diversity around the world. But also Q is a place of other collections, the herbarium collection, the library, the art, the archives, the economic botany, the fungarium, um, the, the DNA collection, the Millennium Seed Bank, of course, which is at the Wakehurst site, um, which is Q's other site in Sussex. All of these are incredible collections of, of plant material. And here comes another aeroplane. <laughs> believe it, would you? We've was had the... <laughs> no aeroplanes for days, and, and now they decide to, to come back. That's that's always oh, the way. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So so um, Q was closed during the COVID nineteen se- session, wasn't it? Is that correct? It was... Yeah. So we, we closed on March the twenty second, um, following government guidance here, and we just reopened yesterday, which was. Um, you know, fabulous to have people coming back in. We're, we're working to a capped number of, of um, visitors, so keeping it sort of to, to the minimum number and, and we don't have the glass houses open in this phase and we don't have the restaurants open and things like that, but at least we do have the gardens and arboretum um, open again and, and our, our visitors can come in and, and just relax in the, the lovely sort of nature all around them. So what was day one like? Was uh, there a bit of a demand to, to get back into the into the garden for those who haven't been able to for a while? Yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, you can imagine anyone who's been, well, as, as you have also in Australia, being, being sort of locked down and, and in situations where you're not allowed to go out. And particularly for our local residents and members for whom Q is, is almost their private sort of, garden or, or they see it that way sometimes they, they were fairly um, vocal in in their in their advice to us that that we we should reopen and and you know we were, we were just being stupid by not being open at times um, we were of course just following the government government's um, guidelines and, and rules on this and, and indeed we were just waiting until we were granted permission to be able to open again and as soon as that came through, we, we, we got in action and, and have opened the gates. Um, so it has been a, a curious time of, you know, what is it, about 10 weeks or so of, of having no visitors. And and for, for the few of us who live on site, um, that's meant that we've had this wonderful 330 acres of, of private 
backyard. Really. Oh my God, that's um, what I was thinking. How mar- how marvelous yeah. to have such an enormous expanse of gardens and yeah. no other soul in there. How fabulous! Yeah. So, but I guess, well, in, but in that, Richard, I mean, that when you look at the financial position, when you you know when you close venues like that off to the public, and it's not just the actual gardens; it's you know all the events and um, yeah, things like yeah. that that you have. Has it? Do you think it's made a, a long term impact on the financial stability of Kew Gardens? Oh, it, it, for, for us and and anyone else like us, it, it's a huge financial impact it's many many millions of pounds and you know that that has you know those are things that need to be need to be addressed so we've had to take a number of decisions related to it to our current financial situation and how we're going to move forward you know cutting back this and that sort of re-looking at budgets and um, drawing into reserves and so forth um you know, it, it has a huge, I mean, in effect, overnight, all of our revenue stopped. Yeah. And for a place like Kew, where, where the government funds only about a third of our annual budget, it means that we need the revenue. And, and when you don't, you know, when, it, when it's turned off literally sort of overnight, mm. um, it does have a massive impact. But, but we're not alone in that respect, you know, across the UK and I'm sure around the world. There'll be a lot of organisations and businesses that are also trying to work out how the heck they're going to sort of struggle out of the, the current situation and, and get back onto onto a stable footing and, and to be able to be sort of robust, not just financially, but, but as, as operating entities again. We, we'd just come off the back of a record-breaking year last year where we had over 2.2, actually close to 2.4 million visitors, which is a, an all-time... Wow record for Q. So it had a fabulous year, um, which I guess just put us in slightly stronger, um, you know, slightly better position because we had a, a we had built our reserves back up a bit, um, you know, in case of a rainy day and, and lo and behold, th- then it just happened this yes. year. So um, I guess that shows the, the benefit of, of always thinking of what might happen in the future. Richard, just a couple of numbers there uh, uh, making me still pick up my jaw from the floor, but 2.4 million visitors, 330 yeah. acres of space. Where do you yeah. even start with that when you first go over? Was it pretty overwhelming at the beginning? Um, not, not really overwhelming. I think there were some, some, some real issues that needed to be addressed. And I've been here, well, almost seven years now. Um, and, and, when I got here, so Q had not had a director of horticulture previously, um, and and I think that maybe gave a bit of a clue as as to some of the issues that existed because the whole realm of the horticulture of Q had not been sort of, I guess, had not been cohesively managed or, or didn't have a a high profile within the organisation, which sort of sounds strange for a That's place that, whose reputation is built around being a garden. Absolutely. But, but so I guess there was a lot to do, um, you know, initially just, just to sort of, I guess, get track, get people into the right sort of positions and, and sort of give a bit of a, a plan for the future. And, and also to just show, you know, to get some stuff done. One of the first things that, that we planned and delivered was the, the new Great Broadwalk Borders, which are a matched pair of borders 320 metres long in, in a very prominent part of the site. And 
it was almost as if there was no confidence and that 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 you know among the staff that they could do something well at the time because I think they'd just over years been I guess felt felt a bit you know downtrodden and mm. and, and that you know and so, so appreciated yeah rebuilding the spirit and the pride and, mm. and just getting stuff done to a high standard and, and we we went on from there to to you know a few other things a children's garden evolution garden um you know we we finished off well when i say we um, the contractors did the full restoration of the temperate house but we reopened that two years ago um so so we've actually been in a phase of really delivering great projects and great improvements around the site and and hand in hand with that the rest of Q has sort of also um you know become more I guess more active productive more better profile better digital presence and and I think all of that contributes towards um uh, the 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 record visitation we we had the Chihuly glass sculpture exhibition last oh, year that was amazing and that brought in a lot of people yeah. yeah, so I um, was lucky enough, um, Jamie, to visit Q last year right. with a little little group of Australians, and yeah. um, so that the glass exhibition was absolutely astonishing. Yeah, very popular too with with visitors, and and that certainly contributed to the to the record numbers for the year. We're so lucky it was last year and not this year too. Yeah. We'd, oh my we'd god. Be, uh, <laughs> We'd be holding our head in our hands if we if we'd got all that organised and then had to stay closed for this It'd be year. Be disastrous. But you've got lots of um, talk about some of the more unusual collections that you've got at at Kew Gardens because you know you've got such a long history of some of those plants are even older than I am. <laughs> Amazing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, so so given that we. Well, there are, there are things growing on site that predated Kew being a garden here. So, so some of the old trees are from the you know, 1600s. So, but, but there are things, you know, a lot of old things planted in the 1700s. But some of the collections, the, the orchid collection, for example, started in the 1700s. And, and it, you know, we have, I mean, it's the world's most diverse collection of orchids. Um, hundreds of species, thousands of cultivated varieties as well. But we we try to concentrate on the wild species within the collections. But you know we we have a huge collection of um, you know carnivorous plants, for example, or um, you know particular iris groups, the alpines. It, you know al- almost whatever your your sort of um, botanical tastes. There, there, there's a collection of things here. Um, within the palm house, we have one cycad that arrived at Kew in the 1770s and, and has been um, in a container here at Kew ever since. So it's probably the world's oldest containerized plant. And, it, and it's looking pretty well, actually. It's Jeez, there's some its place there in the farm house. There's some pressure to keep something like that going, isn't there? <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't it be the one that yeah. lets it go? Well, exactly, or with things that are now extinct in the wild. We, we have a number of, of species that no longer exist in the world, um, you know, in their natural habitat, so they're only being looked after in in botanic garden collections, and some of them, we're the only ones that, that have them at the moment because they might be difficult to propagate or require certain conditions. So so that's some of the sort of 
background work that goes on in a place like this. That most visitors sort of see the front of house and, and enjoy the gardens and the glass houses and, and whatnot. But, but behind all of that, we have three nurseries on site and, and a lot of staff working away on collections in those nurseries. Just, and sometimes it's about sort of collecting seed, sending it on down to the Millennium Seed Bank and, and ensuring that, that that's another sort of insurance for the survival of the species into the and, future. And thank God you have, because of course we had those uh, incredible fires here um, and yeah. uh, you know the Mount Lofty Ranges got incredibly hit in a lot of those, particularly the pea, uh, the clover glycine was, you know, it's yeah. almost extinct here. So um, I think Wakefield sent seed over for that, didn't they? Yeah, so so there's a lot of it seed exchange sort of around the world and um, with, with partnerships with different countries. Here comes another aeroplane. <laughs> um, it's like the, it's like the, the number six tram. <laughs> <laughs> you wait all day. Anyway, um, no. So, so that yeah, things like those those horrendous bushfires just just give a very very practical and real example of of, of the the value of having seed preserved in in secure seed banks um, because you never know when something might happen that that wipes out a species in the wild. Mm. Um, so. I know um, Australia has several seed banks. So there was a large one built uh, with the Royal Botanic Gardens in Sydney at, at um, their Mount Annan site, I think. So, and also Melbourne stores seed. I'm sure there's seed stored in, in WA in Perth as well. Mm. Uh, but right around the world, it's one of the, the very important sort of network things that's, that's being done currently. So how do you balance then the, the needs of cures and attraction for visitors and then obviously that, that very important kind of scientific role that you just spoke about as well with, with, with seed and things like that. Is, that. is that a difficulty? Well, it's not so much a difficulty as, as I think, you know, I, I think we're yet to, to fully realise the opportunity of, of having more of our visitors understand actually what is going on in the background. Um, so Q has over 300 scientists on its staff, 300 plant and fungi scientists working away on projects, not only here, but more often actually around the world. So, you know, in America, in, in Africa, in, in Asia, all sorts of places working on projects, often in partnership with local communities. It might be on food security or sort of preserving biodiversity hotspots or whatever it may be. And I think a lot of those stories, our day-to-day -day visitors aren't really aware of what's going on. And, and so we're trying to find ways to bring those tales more into the foreground. And so, for example, in doing the interpretation for the temperate house, we've used that as a, a window for our visitors to sort of get a glimpse of what's going on in the background and you know, have some of the voices of those scientists talking about their projects and, and, and the value of them and, and what they're hoping to achieve. Um, so it's not so much a, it's not a problem. It's just, I think, uh, so far, it's an, an opportunity that we haven't fully got the benefit from, um, but because there is some extraordinary work going on around mm. the world. Well, it's um, very important said, in I mean, terms it, of conservation, isn't it? I mean, a lot of these, yeah. a lot of the areas that scientists go and, and collect things, it's, um, you know, we're, we're losing biodiversity at a rapid rate at the moment, and you know, species are disappearing uh, before our very eyes, as it were. So 
I think that's you're probably right. I mean, the general public don't really consider the conservation and research side of botanic gardens. So it's fantastic that you can present it in a way that you know they can come in and actually see what happens behind closed doors. Was there any opposition to that though? No, no, not at all. No, no. It's, it's something that that we are all very, very united in our view that should happen. And I should say. Um, a, a very good Australian professional working in interpretation is leading that. It's Sharon Willoughby, who used to work at, at the Cranbourne Gardens, the Royal Botanic Gardens in Victoria. Um, so she's been over here for three years now and, and doing some really good work in, in interpretation here at Kew, mm. um, part of the Aussie mafia that we now have here. <laughs> <laughs> have, they, have they taught them to uh, lighten up a little bit? Because I know when I was there, Richard... <laughs> Uh, not in queue so much, but um, it's quite interesting because there is quite a cultural difference between, and you notice it when you, you go to places where there's perhaps a sort of a hierarchy that we don't have in Australia, you know, it's sort of everyone in together kind of thing. Um, and yes. I, 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 I know some of the National Trust places I've gone to, it's a, it's a little bit hoity-toity for, for the Australians. <laughs> I'm just going to have to be a bit... A bit careful what I say. <laughs> um, yes, uh, I, I think that th there are cultural differences for mm. sure. Um, which isn't to say that I mean there, you know, people you know, perfectly nice, friendly people, but there's sort of there's more of an underlying, I suppose, a social structure or, or mm. some sort of constraints. Where, whereas I think we're lucky in Australia to to be less concerned about such things, and and that I think. Makes, it, it does lead to people feeling a bit more uh, able to 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 talk to anyone, or, or you mm. know, a, a bit, and and you know, probably Australians are a bit more open to just having a chat with mm. anyone and chewing the ear of anyone, whereas people tend to be a bit more self-conscious, perhaps um, by and large in in the UK. And see, we're just as much we're just. As I'll say on that. <laughs> We're just more shameless, I think. That's that's what yeah, yeah, yeah. what it well, gets down to. Well, maybe, maybe we don't take ourselves so seriously. Oh, we certainly don't. No, no, no. Yeah, and and, uh, um, and 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 perhaps we're also a bit more inclined just to get on with things and and not worry too much about you know whether we've been told yeah, we can no. do it or not. Yeah, or, or, or what people might think of us. Yeah. I, I guess yeah, it's hard to put your finger on it, but there's something about Australians in the workplace that that. I think sometimes makes us very, very um, good propositions for, for working in places like mm. Q or, or other organisations because, it, you know, if you want things to get done, you, you need people to do them. Um, and uh, maybe that's what we're good at. Uh, Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> uh, I think you've answered that diplomatically enough that you'll be there for at least another seven years, <laughs> Richard. So, so good job on that. But uh, no one will listen to this from over here. <laughs> no. Uh, but just on the the first seven years, uh, are there still things about the Kew Gardens that, that that surprise you, or elements that you know are there but you, you uncover and and maybe kind of fall in love in for a particular time? Are there, are there still surprises kind of around the grounds for you? Oh, always, always, you know, and, and I think that's the thing about any garden, isn't it? it? You never know it completely. You might think you do, but, um, but yeah, there are always things that, that 
up and surprise you, whether it's a particular plant or a particular view. I mean, we're really lucky here at Kew that we have um, amazing architecture as well. Things like the Palm House, completed in 1848, a beautiful big um, glass house conservatory. The Temperate House, it's it's the world's largest surviving Victorian glass house. Um, with a sort of extraordinary building. And then the more recent things, the Princess of Wales Conservatory, the Alpine House. There, there's amazing architecture around the place. And within that, because within the, the conservatories, you can create the conditions to grow plants from almost anywhere around the world. And, and so the just the sheer diversity of plants and, and you know, the, the colours, the scent, you know, the, the experience, say, when you walk into the palm house and you just feel like you've stepped into the tropics, you know, it's that sort of thing. You might do it a hundred, two hundred, a thousand times, but it will still, every time I do it, I know it's it just transports me to another part of the world. And I think that's that's what gardens can do. You know, they they can, you know, they they give you the passport to anywhere around the world in in currently in a far safer way. I yeah. Know, so, uh, <laughs> just yeah. just on that, has climate change made a difference to? to the gardens in Kew because I, from what I can see when I've been to England, it seems to be getting a lot hotter and a bit drier. Yeah, that's probably the trend. It's a bit hard, the, the climate change trend here, because essentially we're in a maritime climate. We're, we're an island sitting on the edge of the Atlantic. Um, and, and so we have in the last three or four years had had sort of, dry spells of a couple of months in late spring into summer which is quite unusual for for southern england and and that's what we're having right now again and and then we're getting wetter periods through late summer um so so the the rain is it, it used to be pretty even across the year um there wasn't really a dry month or a wet month but but now there does in spring we seem to be getting a dry period and and that does certainly put a lot of plants under stress here because they're not used to growing in those conditions and, and the Kew soil is quite free draining. It's sort of alluvial soil on a bend in the river. So it doesn't hold moisture particularly well. And and so we're having to irrigate specific trees and, and, and young plantings, particularly quite a lot um, through periods like this. And, and we don't have a good... Um, you know, whole-of-site irrigation system, as, as, for example, many Australian gardens do, um, because it's never been seen to be a priority or, or a need in the past. And I think that's one area we're really going to have to uh, look at is is improving our, our whole water management side of things. Um, and, and indeed also looking at, at what we're planting and, and recognising that some of the things that come from, you know, maybe the, the sort of cooler, wetter, uh, part of the temperate scale, they, they're maybe no longer well suited to be planted mm. here. Well, Australia, of course, as I said, Australia's oh, finally cottoned onto that. Oh no, well you can, you can grow anything yeah. in there. And I, I yeah. mean, even without a plant in it, the glass house is magnificent. But there's yeah. been a real yeah. trend in Australia because, of course, we're experiencing uh, a lot more bushfires now and drops in rainfall yeah. and. So the you know in my grandmother's day, um, everyone wanted to replicate the beautiful English sort of cottage garden, and we just don't have the rainfall. Well, certainly in WA, we don't have the rainfall yeah. nor the soil because we're built on a sand pit. Um, yeah. 
But, but I have noticed going to England over the last few years, Richard, there seems to be a lot of interest in the more Mediterranean, even Australian plants from from gardeners that are that are looking sort of to more towards plants that will rely on less rainfall. Is is this a yeah. continuing trend? Do you think? Uh, possibly. I, I I I mean, there have been Australian plants grown in in. English horticulture for a long, long time. It's just that often people don't know they're Australian. Mm. <laughs> um, but, but I think there is certainly a wish to find plants that are better suited to drier summers. Um, mind you, that said, you don't have to go very far north in the UK to, to really find that the summers aren't that dry and, and the temperatures aren't that high. So um, a lot of the UK horticulture is still... I mean, it's it's really... By and large, it's it's very easy gardening conditions because the the latitude of of the UK is you know it's quite high up. London sits at around fifty one degrees latitude, which in the southern hemisphere, if you think of where that is, it's somewhere way down south of of the South Island of New Zealand. It's out yeah. in the Southern Ocean, about you know one of those subantarctic islands. So so that means that the light intensity isn't high. But the the temperatures are modified by the Gulf Current, so we don't get the sort of severe winter cold that we would get otherwise mm. um, at that sort of latitude. And we have the relatively easy light levels and day length and so forth. So it's it's absolutely ideal for growing plants and gardens, which is why Britain has this extraordinary sort of legacy and culture of gardening being such a huge part of of the day-to-day lives of people here it's a massive industry really amazing and fabulous and you only have to go to the Chelsea flower show or Hampton Court flower show and there's a that's a real thing Richard that there's this the English love their gardens like it's 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 inherent in in their soul almost it's extraordinary and you know, when when you visit from Australia and you go to something like the Chelsea Flower Show and you see all those bloody magnificent plants that we haven't got a hope in hell of growing here, um, you you yeah, just you just see the excitement in people when they you know they, and they love their gardens. Yeah, absolutely, and and each of those specialist growers, you know, whether they're growing. Narcissus or, or, you know, irises or this or that, all of the th- stuff they put on show, it's all absolutely perfect. And, mm. you know, that's that's the quality of what they're doing. They've timed it such that, you know, Chelsea isn't the ideal time for, for flowering daffodils, for example, but you will see all of their daffodils timed perfectly to, to be flowering in that week and on display. Um, and just the, the, the quality and the diversity and the perfection of it all is is well, there's nothing like it mm. anywhere else in the world, and and unfortunately, of course, it's those very growers and specialist nurseries who have been hit very hard during the during this lockdown period because they rely, of course, on people being able to come and buy their plants. Mm. Um, so we we hope that that they survive through all of this, but yes, it is. I mean, Chelsea is quite a rarefied window to to look through. It's um, yeah, you know, it's it's quite an experience to go to it. Um, but but it is it is sort of emblematic of of that that wider love of of plants and gardens that is so inherent in in British culture, um, and and it's why places like Kew are, are 
you know, have the place that they do in the world of botanic gardens and horticulture. And you have to frock up for the Chelsea. I even frocked up. Richard bought myself a new frock to go and visit the... <laughs> I looked marvellous, yep. absolutely marvellous, Jamie. So you the dress wouldn't... code is tight, is it? <laughs> I think actually all the women had uh, floral frocks on. I yeah, think confusing. yeah, there's... Because it, it's it's the place you you go to look at the plants and the display gardens and you go to look at the people. You, know, <laughs> you always find a, a lot of celebrities sort of you know prancing around and cameras and and whatnot. Um, and and yeah, it's the sort of place where every five steps you bump into someone and you stop for a chat. So so it's um it's a real social scene, Chelsea. And, and of course gin. this year they gin? they couldn't hold it. Gin and pims. Gin. Pims, yeah. There's a fair bit of drink that goes around as well. Um, Make sure I pack my Sunday best sap when we go over together next Ab- time, okay? Absolutely, Jamie. You've got to be looking your smartest, my friend. Won't you're take smart. me much, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of fun. It's a yeah. bit of fun. But, no, but um, not able to be held this year because of the, the yeah. COVID lockdown, unfortunately. I know. Well, I was, I'm meant to be there as we speak, Richard. Oh, right. Yeah, yes. yeah. Course. So well, this is a very poor second. This <laughs> to be on the on the phone. Gosh, not at all. But you know what's happened in Australia? Um, the horticultural industry has gone just gangbusters because everyone's been stuck at home, and yeah. then they look around their garden and go, oh, "That looks pretty." It looks pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, there yeah. was the whole, you know, Armageddon, oh, we'll have no food so we have to grow it all ourselves. Uh, the yeah. nurseries yeah. have not been able to keep up with the demand on plants, particularly really? veggie fabulous. seedlings. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's great. I hope it carries on, though. I hope it isn't sort of a flash in the pan um, that, you know, and that people do rediscover that that's something that actually they enjoy doing. Yeah. Well, and even Jamie's that, yeah. getting a greener thumb. I've noticed it, you know, by week by week, he's be, be a little avid gardener in no time. I'm learning lots. Yeah, I'm getting there. I had a, had a few failures on the way, but that's okay. You've taught me that that's all right, Sab. Yep, absolutely. That's yeah. part of your learning curve there. If something dies, I just try again. <laughs> and that's the thing about you know, plants and gardens, isn't it? You, you never stop learning. You know, I think everyone just just picks up clues and hints and observes things here and there and tries this and some things work and some things don't and you just you just keep going forward and, you know, that's what's great about it. There's no one who's a complete expert. I mean, we're all easily able to be shown to be an idiot on any day <laughs> of the week and, and that's, that's the way it is, you know. Um, so... It's a great, it's a great, you know, whether you're in it as a professional, whether you're a, a weekend gardener, I just think it's, it's always such a rewarding thing to do. Absolutely. And now that, um, you know, there's been a lot of research done on uh, mental health and well-being and conversing with yes. nature or just being out in nature, um, yeah. that's, that's what I'm hoping. Everyone will get the, get the nature bug and yeah. understand how vitally important it is that we keep that connection with natural environments. Yeah. For sure, for sure. And, and look, in Australia, you know, we, we're just so fortunate. I say we, even though I'm over here, but um, just to have access to such beautiful natural areas, whether mm. it's the beaches, the national parks, you know, the forests, wherever they are, there is such a wealth of extraordinary landscapes, you know, the inland, the, the drier areas. They're just such amazing places. And it's one of the things that, that 
here we we miss most is just being able to get out into some of those wild expanses you know away from everyone and and just enjoy what's around you absolutely richard what do you you hope for for the q gardens maybe in the next seven years i know obviously we're going through quite a unique time right now but but what are your, your goals and your hopes for the future Look, I, I think we um, I, I think we need to get um, better with with getting the benefit from what we've got, and and by that I mean you know we've got these incredible plant collections, um, you know we've got them, we, we've, but what 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 does that mean? You know, what benefit does that provide other than just having them, and, and in some cases the fact that we're we're just keeping very rare things alive. So I think we need to be better at providing those as the basis to provide a benefit for, for you know humankind generally and I think we need to be better at, at, at sort of engaging our visitors with some of the wider issues of what botanic gardens are about what some of the world's issues of, of sort of biodiversity loss and all of those things without beating them over the head but so, so I guess you know ha- having got the house in in good order we need to then do more than just sit back and say, well, okay, now now we've got things in good order. We need to provide that extended benefit of you know what it all means and and how how the sorts of things we can do can provide better, wider, longer lasting benefits for 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 the British and and the world's community. So, I mean, Q is a, is a bit of a leader in um, you know in in sort of linking up with other parts of the world and bringing people together and things like that. And I think that's what we'll be trying to do more of, um, you know, be, being being genuinely sort of citizens of the world rather than having a, a lovely sort of nice garden in, in southwest London. There's another and plane. here's another aeroplane for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I couldn't think of anyone better to actually lead the charge, Richard. I think... Um I think you're very capable of, of bringing, bringing the importance of botanic gardens to the, to the mass, to the throng, as it were, and um, getting them to understand that, you know, conservation and natural spaces and biodiversity preservation is, uh, should be foremost, really, on most of our minds. And I think the whole COVID issue has brought it home how important these natural spaces are and and yeah. conserving the plants that we have here and, you know, getting people to come in and not just have fun but take something a bit deeper from from a yeah. visit to yeah. a garden. Yeah, yeah. And even if it's – I mean, you know, at its most simple level, people visiting gardens generally feel better about the world as a result of visiting the garden. And, and that's a really important thing just now, I think. Um, you know, the, the, the future, that there can be some optimism about the future. It's not all doom and gloom. And I think spiritually that's an important role for gardens as well. For sure. Well, you'll see, see plenty uh, of those kind of locals flooding back, I imagine, over the coming weeks. Richard, um, thanks for taking some time yep. away from the plane spotting to, to have a chat. It was good to, <laughs> good to speak with you. Absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed talking with you both. Thank you and, and good luck with, with uh, winter in Perth. Ah, uh, Thank you so much. parts of the world. <laughs>